0: خدای زنده و جاودان است و سطنتش بی زوال و بی پایان. اوس که نجات می بخشد و میرهانه و کارهای شگفتانگیز در آسمان و زمین انجام می دهد. اوس که دانیال را از چنگ شیران نجات داد. Hello, everybody. Welcome to South Valley. Great to be with you today. Today, we're kicking off a new sermon series in the book of Daniel titled Life in the Den. And for this first message, what I wanted to do was give you a little quick look at the historical, cultural context of Daniel, as well as two major themes in a sermon that I've titled Surviving Babylon. So I'm going to pray and we're going to jump right in this morning. Will you pray with me? Father God, I thank you for this opportunity to open your word. I pray, God, that as we learn about Daniel's story, that we would find ourselves in that story. That we would be reminded, God, that you are sovereign, that you are on the throne, that you love us, that you're for us. And that even in hard times, wicked times, we can remain faithful to you. So be with us now. Bless this time, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open now to Daniel chapter 1, starting in verse 2. 1 that's where we're going to start off today uh, Daniel 1 verse 1 it says in the year in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim king of Judah Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it and the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God and he brought them to the land of Shinar to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now I wanted to start our time together with a little bit of history. So the book of Daniel begins during one of the darkest times in his, Israel's history. For centuries now the kingdom of Israel had been split, divided into two kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom with the capital of Samaria that was called Israel and then there was a the southern kingdom in Judah with the capital of Jerusalem. Now we learn about this, uh, this time in their history in the books of first and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. There's also a whole section in your Old Testament of, of prophets, major prophets, minor prophets, men who were sent to these kingdoms, to these kings to call people back to God. So that's that section in your Old Testament. It was a dark period in the lives of God's people. Well, the Northern kingdom was notoriously wicked. They didn't have a single good king since the days of Solomon. And even Solomon was a mixed bag. And so God, he, he would send messenger after messenger, guys like Elijah and Elisha and Amos and Hosea, people to, to turn God's people back to himself. But no matter what he did and who he sent, they continued in their wicked ways. And so we get a snapshot of just how bad things were in 2 Kings 17, starting in verse 15. This is what it says says they despised God's statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols, they became false, and they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and they made for themselves metal images of two calves and they made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal and they burned their sons and they burned their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. So that's a snapshot of what was happening in Israel. God's people had abandoned him and they had set up false places of worship they bowed down to idols they they rejected God's moral law and they began to accept immorality and they got darker and darker and darker generation after generation kept spiraling further and further into depravity until they went to a point where they were even sacrificing some of their own children. They no longer even had uh, regard for, for the, the lives of their own kids. It was a dark time in Israel's history. And so God was upset. He says this in 2 Kings seventeen eighteen. He says, therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah So what we read about the northern kingdom is they were exiled. In 722 BC, uh, a a wicked nation called the Assyrians came upon the northern tribes and, and they took Everybody captive and they brought them away as slaves in Assyria. God removed his hedge of protection over his people. He allowed a wicked nation to invade them and to judge them. And though a remnant of faithful followers remained in the north, the nation of Israel was now under Assyrian rule and tens of thousands of people were deported and made slaves in Assyria. It was a dark time in Israel's history. Now the southern kingdom was a bit different. You see, while all this was happening in the north, the southern kingdom was still intact. And and one of the reasons why they were a bit different is because they were actually a bit wiser. Daniel and his friends were from the southern kingdom. Judah had a few strong kings like Hezekiah, Josiah, and Jehoshaphat. These, these are men who, who called the country at times to, to national repentance. They would purge the idols in the country. They would spur on occasional revivals by calling people to God's word and to obey God's law and, and to, to, to sacrifice and, and, and to put, honor things like the Passover. They were good kings, but there were only a few good kings because every other king in Judah's history was wicked. And so God sent messengers to the southern tribes, messengers like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Habakkuk, men of God, to turn the people back to him. And he promised, he promised through the prophet Jeremiah, he said, hey, if you don't listen and turn from your sins. I, I'm faithful, I'm, I'm just, I'm patient with you. I will give you opportunity after opportunity to get things right, to be made right with me. I'll give you chances to, to be re- redeemed. But if you continue to refuse my offer of grace and forgiveness and continue down this path, then you're going to be just like the northern tribes. I'm going to exile you. You're going to be slaves in a foreign country for 70 years. That was the promise in Jeremiah 25. Well, 120 years after Assyria invaded the north, a new world power formed called the Babylonians. And the Babylonians were one of the most notoriously demonic nations in world history. They first overthrew Assyria. And then they went down to Egypt and overthrew Egypt. And then they went up to Jerusalem. They invaded Judah and besieged Jerusalem. And that is where the book of Daniel begins. Babylon is invading Jerusalem. Now, this begs the question, how bad was Babylon? Well, Babylon was so bad that it remains as the chief personification of evil in the Bible. Babylon, if you didn't know, was located in modern-day Iraq. It was a culture of astrology, uh, of the occult, a pagan culture, led by a notorious king named Nebuchadnezzar. They made huge cultural advancements in things like art and architecture and mathematics, but they were also notoriously bloodthirsty, and they were brutal, absolutely brutal in their conquest of the world. And so when the book of Revelation talks about the height of human evil on the earth. It doesn't talk about slavery in Egypt. It doesn't even talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. It talks about Babylon. Babylon is the chief personification of human evil. And that's why in in Revelation... When, when the angels rejoice over the final defeat of the wicked, when God comes, the Son of God returns, and, and Satan is locked up into a, a, a lake of fire, and, and all God's people are redeemed, and wicked is finally, evil is finally done with for good, the angels cry out, Revelation eighteen two. fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. You see, Babylon is a symbol of exorbitant luxury, lust, immorality, and greed, a symbol of God's enemies, the enemies of God attacking the people of God. In St. Augustine, he picks up on some of this language in in a very famous book called The City of God. Uh, It's a famous book. I I know uh, Pastor Seth on staff here has been trying to read that book for a while now. It's a challenging book, but it's a a famous philosophical book, and in it he talks about two cities, and he, he points out that we as human beings, we have a choice to belong to one of these two cities. One city represents everything that is against God, and the other city represents everything that is for God. This is what he says. Two cities have been formed by two loves. The earthly city, Babylon, has been formed by the love of self. Even the contempt of God. But the heavenly city, which is represented as Jerusalem has been formed by the love of God, even the contempt of self. And so we have options. What city are we going to belong to? Are we going to do things God's way or our way? Are we going to go with God's people or with, the, with culture and what everyone says is popular? Well, Babylon was stood for everything that God did not stand for. They violently opposed the people of God and they exalted themselves, kings like, kings like Nebuchadnezzar exalted themselves above Yahweh. And we see this explicitly with what Nebuchadnezzar did when he raided Jerusalem and the temple. Because the first thing he did is he went into the temple and he took items out of the temple, these gold and silver items, and he brought them back to his hometown and he set them up on display in demonic temples in Babylon. And so this was Nebuchadnezzar's way of saying, I'm the real God. I rule this world. I make the rules. I'm in charge. You're my slave. I am the real deal. So that's what people were thinking when Nebuchadnezzar came in and overthrew God's people. God, where's God at in all of this? And it looks like God's people are losing. But that said, there's a really important phrase repeated over and over in the book of Daniel, you're going to hear it again next week, and it's, it's right here at the opening lines of the book of Daniel. It's this phrase, the Lord gave. It says, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. You see, Israel's defeat by the Babylonians, it's not explained by the military might of Babylon or the wisdom of King Nebuchadnezzar. You see, the, the one who's really in control of the nations is not necessarily the kings of those nations. The one who is in control of every nation on planet earth, the one who builds up nations and tears them down, put kings on the throne and takes them off of the throne, the one who is ultimately in charge of all things is God in heaven. God is sovereign over the course of history, even over those who rebel against him and seek to destroy his people. Nebuchadnezzar captured the people of God because the Lord gave the people of God to Nebuchadnezzar. So this is kind of a hard reality that we have to swallow as Christians, something that we need to come to terms with, and it's this. Sometimes the short-term success of the wicked is God's plan. Sometimes the short term success of the wicked is God's plan. You see, God had held back the wicked for centuries and centuries and centuries in Israel. But he promised that if, they were, if, if God's people were going to look just like everybody else, then he was going to not hold back the, the wicked nations anymore. And so he lifted his hand of protection and he allowed something horrendous to happen in the nation of Israel. And and, and so sometimes God, God's short-term success, the short-term success of the wicked is God's plan. A great example of this is the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross was the most wicked event in human history. God's creation crucified God's one and only son. There's nothing more horrendous than that. But God took the darkest day in human history and he accomplished on that day the greatest good for all of humanity. God is in charge. God is in control. And at the end of the day, when God is behind it, all things work together for good. Because here's theme number one in the book of Daniel and it's this, God is in control of who is in control. Did you know that? God's in control of who is in control. Now, I know that some of you right now, because of things that you're seeing on the news, struggles you're having at work, struggles we've been having over the last couple of years in our country, I know that there are times where you are sitting back, because I'm doing this too, stepping back and just wondering, where is God in all of this? Is evil winning? Are we becoming a modern-day Babylon? Like, where is God What's going to happen with God's people? Are we on the losing side of this thing? It just seems like, it seems like things are getting worse. It seems like we're just getting beat up left and right. Where is God? Is evil winning? What's going on? Well, when I think of this, I actually think a little bit of sports. I think some of you guys know this by now, but I'm a bit of a football fan. And my favorite quarter in football is the fourth quarter. And my favorite time in the fourth quarter is the last two minutes Of the game, and the reason I love the fourth quarter and the last two minutes is because in that section of the game, everything is on the line, and there are some players who are just incredible in the final two minutes. They they have the two-minute drill down. You got to think of guys like Peyton Manning from the past, Drew Brees, Tom Brady, Patrick Mahomes. Okay, some guys who you give them the ball with two minutes left. Others may not be able to do much, but these guys, Aaron Rodgers, they can do incredible things in the final two minutes of a game. A good example of this, my favorite game of all time, and that especially when it comes to that last two minutes, is, was the Bills-Chiefs game from last year's playoffs in the divisional round. I'm sure you remember this game or you saw highlights of this game. In this, fi- in this game, the lead changed three times in under two minutes. Three times. And I remember watching the game. I remember watching Josh Allen get the ball down the field. There was only like a few seconds left on the clock. And, and they put some points up on the board. And everyone thinks the game is over. Like, there's nothing Patrick Mahomes and his team can do with 13 seconds left on the clock. I remember Tony Romo getting on. He's like, hey, that was awesome by Josh Allen. They are, I can't believe they did this. What is Mahomes even going to do? But then in walked Mahomes. And he walks out on the, on the field, he throws a pass to Tyreek Hill, the cheetah, gets some yardage out of that. Then he throws a pass to Travis Kelsey, gets some yardage out of that. Then the, the, the kicker runs out on the field, kicks it through, and they go into overtime. They get the coin toss, they, they drive it down, first, first drive in the game, they score and they end up beating the Bills. It was crazy. I remember watching that game, and as it was unfolding in those last two minutes, I was, I was sweating. I was so anxious. I was so nervous. I was just like, I was a hot mess, eating my Cheetos, doing whatever I could to just focus and, and not stress out too much. And here's the thing. I'm not even a Chiefs fan or a Bills fan. But I was worked up because I didn't know what was going to happen. And I remember people rejoicing on the Bill's side, thinking the game was over, when in walked my homes and everything changed, and, and within two minutes, it was a totally different game. Now here's the thing. I see that game and it makes me think a little bit of Christians today. You see, when I talk to some Christians today, I see Christians who are panicked. They're panicked because they feel like we are in the last two minutes of the fourth quarter and we're losing. But here's the thing. We know the end of the story. We know, now I I don't know all the ins and outs of the book of Revelation. But what I do know is that when I peek at the end of the book of Revelation, I know that in the end, you win. If you belong to Jesus, you win. And so panic and despair are never from God, because at the end of the day, God's people win. So so here's the thing. When I go back and I watch the Bills Chiefs game, I'm no longer anxious. You know why I'm no longer anxious? Because I know who wins in the end. Daniel and his friends had to trust That God was in control of who was in control and that in the end God would work things out for their good. So I don't know what your future holds for you you personally or your family or for this country. But I do know when we look at the end of the story, God is for his people, God is with his people, and at the end of the day, even if it feels like you are losing in the moment and the sidelines are rejoicing and evil seems to be winning, Jesus will step in with 13 seconds left on the clock and he will bring it home for you. God's people win. Well, Babylon, they didn't just steal items from the house of God they took it up a couple notches further by also kidnapping the best and the brightest teenagers and bringing them back to Babylon listen to what the rest of the passage says Daniel 1 verse 3 it says then the king commanded Ashpenaz his chief eunuch to bring some of the people of Israel both of the royal family and of the nobility youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them new names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. So why would they do this? Why kidnap the best and brightest? What, what is Nebuchadnezzar trying to do here? Well, Nebuchadnezzar and other kings like him during this time in history they did this as a way of crippling the perpetuation of the culture that they were invading okay they wanted to stop jewish culture dead in its tracks stop the worship of yahweh dead in its tracks and so what they did is they they captured a city they captured the 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 uh, most important people in that city, and then they took all of the influencers out of that city and then brought them back to Babylon and would reprogram them to make them Babylonian. A commentator named Baldwin says this, a few choice hostages from the Judean court would weaken resources in Judah and prove useful to the conqueror and reinforce Judah's vassal status. So that's what Nebuchadnezzar was doing. He was crippling Judah and he was creating a whole new culture of teens who who grow up Babylonian and would reject Yahweh. Well, Education, what would happen, education in in this culture in Nebuchadnezzar's court usually began around the age of 14. So Daniel and his friends, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they would have been kidnapped around the age of 13, 14 years old. They would have been brought back to Babylon. And in Nebuchadnezzar, he was looking for specific qualifications to work in his court. It said that they needed to be physically free from bodily blemish or handicap. They needed to be pleasing to, in appearance in, in the public eye. They also needed to be mentally sharp. They needed to be students who can learn a new language, learn new customs, grow in, in whatever they had to, to learn in the court of the king, mentally sharp. They were also required to be socially poised and polished And because they were going to be representing the greatest leader on earth at the time, Nebuchadnezzar. And they were going to be talking to other powerful leaders. And so that's what he was looking for. And anyone who worked for the king in his court was forced to go through a government-mandated education program. Three years under the instruction of Babylonian teachers. And as you went through this program, you weren't trained in multiple worldviews. Instead, you were trained in the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. You were trained in the occult. You were trained in Babylonian worship. You were trained to be like a Babylonian and to serve the king of Babylon. And so he took the best and the brightest and he forced them to learn a language, customs, and the worship of Babylon. And among those kidnapped were four Friends, And these friends are going to be important for the rest of the book of Daniel. The first is the guy who the book is named after, and that is Daniel. Daniel means God is my judge. The second was Hananiah. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. The third was Mishael, which means who is like God. And finally, Azariah, which means Yahweh has helped. And the reason I'm showing you their names and their meanings is because the first thing Nebuchadnezzar did was stripped them of their identity. He, he took these boys, kidnapped them, took them away from their family, took them away from their homeland, took them away from worship in their temple, and he gave them new names, and he changed their names from names that honor God to names that would honor Satan. The, the, for example, Daniel, the name Daniel meant God is my judge. It was changed to Belshazzar, which means Baal's prince. They were renamed. They were re-educated, retrained. And finally, number three, and this is pretty brutal, but it was common in these days, they were castrated. They were castrated. Now, when I said castrated, some of you started squirming. Castration is something that was common in these days if you were to be working among the king in his harem and within his court. It was a common requirement for eunuchs. And there are certain indicators from scripture to support the view that Daniel was made a eunuch. First, we read that Daniel, well we discover reading his story, we learn Daniel, he was, he'd never married. Okay? Daniel didn't have a wife, he didn't have any offspring, and he was there for 70 years in Babylon. He, he was powerful eventually. Okay, he was, he's a rags to riches story. But even in all of that, he never had children. He never had a spouse. Second, Daniel was a slave in a time and place where castration of slaves was common. Okay, this was what kings would do. They would take you. They'd, uh, they'd make you a slave. They would castrate you. And what do we learn about who Daniel was going to work under? We read in the passage that he worked under Ashpenaz, the chief of the king's eunuchs. So Daniel would have been made like a eunuch. And third, 2 Kings 20 in other places prophesied that some of the nobility from Judah would be taken away by the king of Babylon and made into eunuchs. This is what it says, 2 Kings 20 verse 18. And some of your descendants Your own flesh and blood that will be born to you will be taken away and they'll become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So that's what Nebuchadnezzar did. Renamed you, re-educated you, castrated you. Now castration was performed to ensure that you didn't have children And also that you had no romantic interest. When you were castrated, that was the king's way of saying, guess what? You belong entirely to me. The only passion you're allowed to have in life is a passion for the wishes of the king. It also qualified these young men who we read were handsome in appearance, right? They were handsome. It qualified them to work among the king's harem. See, the king would have... A large harem, this was the custom back then, it was, it was evil, it was wrong, but these eunuchs would work among the harem, and so being castrated was a way of making sure that his harem wasn't defiled by somebody else. Well, I'm not sure when you last had a bad day, but this is a really bad day. Okay, this is a terrible day. Kidnapped, renamed, castrated. Okay, this is worse than, you know, when Starbucks, mess, Starbucks messes up your order, that kind of bad day. This is a very different kind of bad day. This is worse than, than even pulling up to the gas station and seeing that gas costs $6 a gallon right now. That's a bad day. But this is, this is a terrible day. Daniel is a story for people who are living in terrible times, enduring terrible days, forced to, into terrible circumstances. I don't know what your story is today. I don't know how hard life has become. I don't know what challenges you're facing. I don't know what challenges have come upon you personally or on your family or on your health or in your workplace. But if you have challenges, if you are dealing with a challenging season, you have bad days, bad months, bad years, wherever it is on that spectrum, I want you to know Daniel is a book for you. This is the context of the book of Daniel. It's a bad season in Israel's history and it's a bad time in Daniel's life. But God is still doing something good in spite of all the bad. Now, if you didn't know any better, then you might assume that Daniel was a horror story. You might assume by these opening verses that that this is just going to go downhill and downhill fast. But on the contrary, Daniel is a story about thriving in the darkness. It's a story about godly living in a godless society. It's a story about shining brightly for the Lord... Even when it costs you, even when it's scary, when it takes courage. It's a story about God wanting to use people who will stand for him and trust him even when it's hard. So why study Daniel? Why study Daniel? Well, it's no easy thing. And I'm learning this more and more just because of the things that we've gone through the last three years. And the things that we're continuing to go through as a culture. Learning more and more It's not an easy thing to live a godly life in the midst of an increasingly godless society. It's not easy. It's not an easy thing to walk faithfully with God When things are tough and when you feel like people are coming at you and when you feel like maybe people are calling you certain names or when you feel like uh, Christianity or your values or whatever are being attacked, it's not an easy thing to do to live a godly life in the midst of an increasingly godless society. But Daniel did it and Daniel shows us how to do it. You see, he not only survived in Babylon, which is the title of the sermon, but he even thrived in Babylon. He was promoted time and time again. He stood out among the rest. He, he graduated top in his class. He was trusted eventually by the king and by the kings that followed King Nebuchadnezzar. He changed an entire empire because of his faithfulness to God. He not only shined in a godless society, but he helped inspire three nationwide revivals in a span of 70 years. Which is what leads us to theme number two in the book of Daniel and it's this it's possible it is possible to remain faithful to God in a hostile world it's possible it's possible for you to remain faithful to God in a hostile workplace it's possible for possible for you to remain faithful to God in a hostile family environment It's possible for you and me to remain faithful to God in a hostile world. Whatever we're facing, whatever we're enduring, whatever we have to deal with, it is possible to stay true to the Lord even when things are tough. Now here's the thing. Living for Jesus is only going to get harder. I told you I don't know the ins and outs of Revelation. I could teach you the book of Revelation. I understand Revelation. I've taught it. I've studied it. I I, I do know the book of Revelation. I don't know exactly how all the events are going to play out in history. I don't know all of that. I I think I would be speculating to just to to give you my opinion on some of those things. But you know what I do know about history? And this is hard to hear, but it's a reality. Things are going to get harder before they get better. Things are only going to get worse before Jesus comes and makes all things right. And so you are going to have two options as a Christian in this world. And these are going to become more and more apparent. Maybe they weren't apparent 10 years years ago, but maybe over the last couple of years it's become more and more apparent. I think 10 years from now it's going to become increasingly more clear. You have two options. When things get tough, when people are pressing in on you, when people are being hostile towards you. Two options, like Daniel and his friends. Number one, you can be courageous, you can stand firm, you can persevere, you can show humility and love and show kindness even to your enemies, which is what Daniel did. He respected even an evil king named Nebuchadnezzar and you could stay the course and trust God and trust that God is in control of who is in control. Or number two, You could give up. You could give in. You could crumble under the pressure to become just like everybody else. And and students are gonna be facing this battle more than most of the people in our church are gonna be feeling it. Because we have students in our church who are about to graduate high school and they're gonna go off to amazing universities and they're gonna get degrees and they're gonna get trained for the workplace. But in those universities, as awesome as they are and as amazing as the education is going to be, they're going to see pretty quickly that the majority of our culture today is becoming hostile in its view of Christianity. If you take a philosophy class, if you take a religion class, you take a psychology class. And I'm not against any of those classes. Take them all. Learn it all. But even a science class, it's going to become clear very quickly that you have an option, two options really. One, trust God, do good, lean into Him, or two, give in and become just like everybody else. What are you gonna do? See, Daniel and his friends. They were forced with options. That's what we're going to talk about next week. So tune in with us next week because they were immediately hit hit with some conflict in their spirit. What do we do when Nebuchadnezzar asks us to do things that are against God? How do we respond? What do we do? Well, Daniel and his friends, the only reason they were able to thrive in Babylon is because they were wise. They lived with incredible wisdom. Even at the age of 14, 15 years old, they lived with incredible wisdom. Proverbs 1, 7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. They put God first in everything they did. And because they had incredible wisdom and they trusted the Lord, what we we learn about their lives is that these teenagers... eventually grew up okay Daniel lived 70 years in Babylon in the public eye okay he, he did this for his whole life but even as a teenager we learned that they knew when to partake and when to abstain when to be silent and when to speak up they knew when to stand firm when to fight back when to be quiet. When to to push up against what was coming their way, they had wisdom. It takes wisdom to know how to navigate the challenges that we face in this culture. You see, they could have just come at it like a Rottweiler and, and just you know started being angry and, and, and just blowing up in, in Nebuchadnezzar's face and, and, and in the eunuch's face, but they were wise, they were patient, they trusted God, they had the wisdom of knowing the difference. We're going to talk about this next week between what we don't like and what God forbids. They didn't like studying the occult, but God didn't forbid it. They could study the occult without actually worshiping false gods. They, they didn't like doing certain things, but there were other things that God did forbid. We're, we're going to find out next week. They put their stake in the ground and they said, this is too much for me. But they knew when to make those decisions. They had the wisdom of knowing what battles to pick, what battles to fight. And although they always put God first, they still worked hard and were loyal In the presence of a wicked king. They served Nebuchadnezzar well. They graduated at the top of their class and stood out above the rest. Why? Because they had wisdom. Wisdom from God. They showed us that it's possible to remain faithful to God in a hostile world. So in closing, I want you to know in this first opening sermon in this series... That if you have the confidence today that God is in control of who is in control, and if you have the fortitude today to remain faithful to God in a hostile world, then He will give you through His Holy Spirit the wisdom you need to navigate whatever comes your way. It may feel at times that evil is winning. It may feel at times that you are in the last two minutes of the fourth quarter and the, 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 the team that you are up against, your enemy is, is chest bumping on the sidelines and you have lost. But if you stay the course and you keep your eyes on him and you trust that he's in control and you remain faithful and humble and loyal, he will give you the wisdom you need. He will vindicate your cause. He will come through. You will see Jesus wins. He fights for his people. He'll fight for you. And in the book of Daniel, he's going to fight for Daniel over and over and over again. But here's the thing. The whole book of Daniel, I'm just going to, it's kind of a spoiler. Daniel never gets out of Babylon. Yeah, he gets out of some really challenging situations like Daniel in the lion's den, but he never gets out of Babylon. God fights for him time and time again, but he still has to endure in a challenging situation. God is for you. God is with you. It doesn't matter how big or how challenging it is. Trust in him. Lean on him. Three ways to respond really quickly before we go to this message. Number one, my challenge to you is to read the book of Daniel this week. I don't know when the last time was that you read Daniel. Either listen to it, read it. Read it in a new translation. If it's been a while, maybe ch- check out the ESV or NIV or NLT or NASB. Read the book of Daniel. Number two, choose today to live with optimism instead of despair. Choose optimism over despair. We, Daniel believed that God was in control over who was in control. He didn't need to despair what was happening in his life because he knew that at the end of the day, God was with him and for him and so he could remain filled with hope and optimistic about life. Choose optimism, dwell on the good things, do good, don't be burdened by things that are outside of your control. Trust God even when it's hard. And finally, number three, respect everyone. Even your enemies. Daniel and his friends, they had to learn to respect an evil king: a king who kidnapped them, a king who castrated them, a king who reprogrammed and re-educated them, a, kid who, a king who took them from their families. If there was any time in history where it was OK to not respect someone in authority, this would be it. But they respected Nebuchadnezzar. And because they respected him and they worked hard and they excelled at their job, God gave them a special voice and a special calling in a very dark place. And they spurred on three revivals in a time where no one thought God could break through. And that is my hope for Lamor. That is my hope for this country. That is my hope for this church. That is that we would be people who trust God, lean into him, serve him, work as missionaries in a dark place. We're not judgmental towards the world, but we see the evil, we see the spirit of Babylon around us. We stay the course and we see revival. We call people out of darkness into Jesus' marvelous light. People are transformed. They're changed and they're sent back out into the world to go and and, and to, to, to see the promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against God's church. We are sent out to make a difference. That's what Daniel and his friends understood. Their first calling, their highest calling was to make an impact in a dark world and that is your first calling and your highest calling. And So I want to encourage you through the book of Daniel. Keep your eyes on him and make an impact. God has chosen you. He wants to use you. He wants to bless you. And if you don't know Jesus today, then my encouragement to you would be to make today a day of salvation. Trust in him for the first time. Say today, God, my allegiance is not to Somebody else or something else, my allegiance now today is going to be to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the one who rules on the throne forever, the one who who is over a kingdom who would, who can never fail. That is who my allegiance lies with, and I trust in you. Forgive me. I want to lean on you. I want to worship and be a part of the God of the universe. Make today a day of salvation. I'm going to pray And if you want to pray to receive Jesus, you can pray this with me right now, even over the screen. So why don't you pray with me? Let's close it out. Father God, I just pray right now as we close this out that if there's anyone listening today who needs you, who needs to finally surrender to you, who's been wrapped up in, in, in the spirit of Babylon and doing things their own way and, and exalting men above you and men's rules and laws above yours and, and becoming proud and arrogant like, like Nebuchadnezzar and, and de- trying to defame you. I pray, God, for a, just a heart of repentance. And I pray that you would invade them in their lives right now. Invade Christians also and give them a spirit of humility and trust. If you you want to receive Jesus right now, I want to encourage you to pray this prayer with me right now. And even behind your your iPhone or your, your TV screen, wherever you might be watching, pray this prayer with me. Father God, I believe. I believe that you sent your son to die for me. I believe that Jesus is the true king of the world. I believe that he died on a cross for my sins. I confess that I'm in need of his grace. Jesus, fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me the strength to live a new life for you. I want to be about what you are about. Help me to overcome my sin, overcome my addictions, overcome my pains to trust you with my life and my future. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless, church. I want to say thank you so much for joining us today. Be with us next week as we go into part two of our sermon series, Daniel, Life in the Den. God bless. We'll see you on Sunday.